1: Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. We are starting a series of episodes about the politics of medical expertise. Every once in a while, you'll hear us cover medical research, medical policy, and medical controversies. Right now, euthanasia is the hot-button medical issue in Canada. Actually, we call it medical assistance in dying, or MAID. No matter where you live, MAID raises a bunch of very challenging political and philosophical questions. Canada has arguably the most expansive MAID regime in the world. And in early 2023, it is going to get even more expansive. People with mental illnesses will now be able to apply for medical assistance in dying. Or at least that was the plan until the federal government just announced that they would pump the brakes. We'll talk about that soon, but before that, a quick recap on where we are and how we got here. May has long been banned, but in 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that this ban was unconstitutional. The case was called Carter v. Canada, and you'll hear it referred to a few times in this episode. The court forced the government to develop legislation that would legalize and regulate MAID. And in 2016, they did. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau advanced Bill C-14.
2: This government is focused very much on respecting Canadians' rights, on uh, defending their choices and allowing them choices, while at the same time protecting the most vulnerable in society.
1: But this legislation had a number of major restrictions. The big one was this. You could not seek MAID unless you were facing a reasonably foreseeable death. So that means MAID could speed up your death, but if you weren't already dying, no MAID. In Quebec, Jean Truchon challenged this reasonably foreseeable clause. Truchon was suffering from an incurable degenerative disease, cerebral palsy. His lawyers claimed his condition put him in persistent and intolerable suffering, This wasn't a reasonably foreseeable death, but no matter. They argued that he should still have the right to maid, and denying him that right was violating his charter rights and the rights of other disabled people. In the end, Truchon's challenge was successful. This meant that he had a legal right to choose maid, and it also meant that the government would be forced to expand their maid policy, and they did. Truchon ended his life by MAID in 2020. So here's where we stand. You could be eligible for MAID if you live in Canada, you're 18 and judged to be mentally competent, you give informed consent, you aren't pressured, and you have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. That condition must be serious and irreversible, but it need not be terminal. Mental illness is excluded from those conditions, but only until March 17th, 2023. Let me tell you how I've seen this and how I think most people left of center have. MAID respects the dignity, autonomy, and freedom of choice of patients. It's a civil liberties question, pure and simple. On principle, you just have to accept it. It's maybe a little bit like abortion, or drug policies that center on harm reduction. It's not a perfect analogy, but the impulse is the same and the opponents are the same. You respect people's choice over what they do with their own bodies, and you reject the religious moralists who would deny that choice. That's how it's been, but those ideological grounds are shifting. Many of the loudest critics protesting Made in Canada are in fact leftists. Socialist commentators like Nora Loretto, our Harbinger colleague, and disability rights activists from across the country. They are pointing to a series of troubling news reports about people who are turning to MAID because of things we never thought MAID was for. People like Amir Farsoud. Farsud has a back problem, but that is not his only problem. How bad does it get? Um, At worst, it gets bad enough that I'm crying like a five-year-old
3: and not sleeping for two days in a row.
1: But that's not why he has applied for medically assisted dying, otherwise known as MAID, nor is it the depression he lives with. Farsud has applied because he is in danger of losing his housing. He lives in this St. Catherine's rooming house, but it is up for sale. Farsud lives on social assistance and says he can't find anywhere else he can afford.
3: I don't want to die,
1: but I don't want to be homeless more than I don't want to die. Farsud tells the city TV news reporter that he couldn't survive homelessness anyways, so it's better to choose MAID. In response to this story, somebody set up a GoFundMe page in Farsud's name. The community raised $60,289. Farsud responded to this generosity on the page. Producer Jay Coburn pulled up his response. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to give everyone an update on my circumstances. Due to your unbelievable kindness and support, as well as that of others who are helping me find a long-term housing solution, I have been given a second chance at life. Now, because of all of you, I can once again dare think of a future. And for that amazing sweet gift, I would like to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. Not everyone has been so lucky. Disability rights advocate Liz Kessler has been keeping a Google sheet of similar stories. Kessler compiled Canadian news reports of people seeking MAID where they cite either poverty inadequate disability supports, or inadequate health care access. They also include cases where the family believes that consent was inadequate at the time of the decision. This list includes 14 cases. At least eight of them went through. That's eight people that didn't need to die, eight people that should have been provided for, and eight people that should have been better cared for. These stories have caused outrage. So at the very last minute, the Liberal government is seeking to slow down the planned expansion of MAID to people with mental illnesses. Opposition parties support the delay. This all has me feeling rather ambivalent and rather confused. So we called up Nipa Chohan, a bioethicist and founder of the website Cafe Bioethics.
0: So as an ethicist, I want people to know that I'm just as confused as they are.
1: Cho Han has a good blog post describing the ethical conundrum here. The post asks if medicine should address the world as it is or the world as it should be.
0: Made legislation is coming from a place to respect people's autonomy, their, their decision making, their own life, their own dignity. And yet, people are making this choice from a place of reluctance, that they're reluctantly having to choose made.
1: Made opponents reject being forced to make this reluctant choice. Chohan characterizes their argument as the better world argument.
0: And I can't take credit. It comes from the value judgment substack from Dr. Eric Matheson. It's so beautifully explained where essentially the better world is a place where people wouldn't have to make these decisions based on reluctance. They wouldn't have to make these decisions because they can't find a family doctor or their welfare doesn't cover their living expenses, and the economy is the state that it's in. So if we can reach that better world, then people wouldn't have to make those decisions, choose made reluctantly, and that would be a better place for us. That would be a a place where people can choose made from a place of full autonomy. And that argument has its own problems as well, because how long do we have to wait, right? How long do we have to tell people who are suffering right now to sit tight and say, just wait, we're going to make the world a better place, and then you wouldn't have to choose made in the first place.
1: What Matheson is arguing and what Chohan is describing here is basically that the better world argument falls flat. Because all it does is justify inaction. It also doesn't follow that outlawing made improves access to other social supports, And it doesn't follow that supporting MAID means that you can't fight for those same supports. So basically, MAID is one thing, housing and poverty, that's a different thing. The argument has a pretty convincing logic, yet I'm not completely convinced. Because this isn't a simple logical debate. It's a debate about systems of political power and incentives, about economic interests, medical expertise, and bureaucratic rationalities. At the end of the day, you're going to have to trust these systems and the people within them. You're going to have to trust that they know what they're talking about, and when the time comes, they make the right call. But for many people, there is no trust. On Twitter, you can see disability rights activists like Liz Kessler calling made a new kind of eugenics. When I first read those kinds of tweets, I thought they were hyperbolic. But when you look closely at the history of our healthcare system, it makes a certain amount of sense that people think like this. Formal eugenics policies weren't ended that long ago. And in fact, they persist informally. A recent study found 22 cases of forced sterilizations of Indigenous women in Quebec since 1980. The most recent forced sterilization they found was in 2019. That is the healthcare system we are talking about. So it's understandable that people have fears. Maybe in the hospital room, the doctor should be pushing strongly against MAID, but their words will nudge a disabled or mentally ill patient towards MAID. Where does that leave us on what the right policy is? I'm not sure, but today I will hear arguments from both sides and I'll debate both. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on the NBN. If you're finding us for the first time, consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this episode, you'll surely like other stuff that we do. You can find that all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today to never miss an episode. Professor Trudeau Lemons is one of the most outspoken critics of MAID legislation in Canada. He's professor of health law and policy at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. Lemons focuses on bioethics, disability rights, health governance, and research ethics. Well, Professor Trudeau Lemons, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to speak with you today.
3: Uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: So as you know, obviously, we are going to talk about MAID. But before we get there, I was hoping to just Learn a little bit more about you and what what you typically study and how you ended up here being such an outspoken critic of Canada's approach to MAID.
3: Yes, so um, I'm a professor of health law and policy, and I grew up in Belgium. I moved to Canada more than 25 years ago, and I thought, having studied Belgium and the Netherlands and seeing what has developed over time in those jurisdictions, it's important as a professor of health law and bioethics to contribute to the debate. My warning sign was that these countries had seen a couple of things develop. First of all, a significant increase over time in the proportion of people dying by uh, euthanasia in comparison with the overall death rate. So more and more people had their life ended by euthanasia and assisted suicide. In and of itself, it's hard to say whether that's a troubling development or not. It may simply be, well, people learn about it more and they, they become more comfortable and it may, but I would say in any area of medical practice, when you see a steep increase in the practice, I think there are reasons to ask the question, why is that? Are we dealing here with a phenomenon of over practice, over prescription, maybe a, a certain sloppiness develops over time. So that that's one thing, but it I don't think it's the major thing. What I really wanted to emphasize in the Canadian context was that. That we should be careful saying that it should be available also outside of the end of life context for people who are not in the process of dying, because we've seen in Belgium and Netherlands that originally the cases of euthanasia were largely cases of people who had cancer, who had a terminal illness, who uh, had a neurological disease and were approaching that. You see over time in Belgium and Netherlands, particularly in the last decade, an increase in elderly people who were not ill who are not in the process of dying getting euthanasia you saw people with mental illness starting to receive medical assistance and dying uh, and euthanasia and a significant increase in the numbers of these people receiving it and you see also the development of controversies around persons with disabilities who are not in the process of dying but who receive euthanasia because of suffering that arguably has not been addressed with sufficient social support and accommodation for their disability so Mm -hmm. in other words people who are not dying but who are confronted with a challenging situation associated with disability are now are being helped to die and so i i thought this is an important factor that we have to take into consideration and i supported therefore in the canadian context uh, the, the introduction of a law that could Really focus only on people who are approaching their natural death. So, when they are approaching their natural death, it's arguably defendable to say, well, a physician is confronted with a dilemma. You know, people are in the process of dying, broadly conceived. They want to have some control over the the manner in which they are dying, and they seem to be suffering significantly. In those circumstances, I would say, well, it seems less of a risk to start introducing or uh, in, uh, allowing physicians to do so.
1: What precisely do you think of is, is the risk here? Do you think disabled and poor patients are essentially going to be pressured or s- somehow pushed into a decision that they might not want?
3: Yeah, so uh, I mean, the concern, We. this is I mean, it's an interesting question that you asked that, and it's a fair question. At the same time, I would say it reflects a little bit that we suddenly have started to shift how to think about uh, about dead and dying of, of people among us. So I would say what's the concern that we have people dying prematurely. So people dying while we I hope are still committed to sending the message to everybody who is around here. You have a place in the society. We believe that you have a role to play. We, we think suicide prevention is important. Maybe circumstances where people giving up on life but in and of itself, we as a society have a strong commitment to send a message and to support people in being full members of our society. So people who die prematurely, who would otherwise have years of life left, I think is a tragedy.
1: Do you think there's ever a context in which there could be a patient that doesn't have a terminal illness, but has one that is so unbearable that choosing this is a worthy decision or a decision that that they can make?
3: I would say at the individual level, we can always find situations. uh, We can even think for ourselves, you know, in that particular situation, I would find it very, very difficult to continue living. But people should realize that there is always an option for us not to to continue to live. Uh, And so what we are talking about is creating a system whereby physicians are given the power to select uh, to basically decide whether they agree or not that a person fulfills certain criteria, and where we have the state fully funding the termination of life of persons with disabilities who are not dying and it's a system that actually in my view has an impact on the way our society deals with the concept of disability, has an impact on on how people, persons with disabilities perceive themselves. So if you tell people we know that from or we, we accept that kind of argument, certainly in the context of, say, racism and sexism. If, we, if So I would say we have to kind of look at what the systemic impact is of organising fully state-funded and medical system-provided death in the context of a complex doctor-patient
1: relation that it's it's sort of sending a message, it's normalizing this as a choice. Is your contention that that is likely to lead more people to choose this as an option? Because you could consider the the sad reality that they do have a choice, that they could kill themselves in another way. So I'm not
3: portraying it as if, oh, a doctor merely bringing it up will lead to people immediately saying yes. But you have to look at the context in which, it, which this happens. We have an inadequate healthcare system. We actually don't have, in the Canadian context, a recognition of the right to health. We have people who have no funding for pharmaceuticals. We have people on wait lists for adequate uh, home support. We have very lengthy wait times for mental health care. We have um, uh, inadequate disability support. In the context of COVID, we see increasing concerns about people not having sufficient food on the table. So it is in this context where we have a disproportionate number of persons with disabilities impacted by these limitations of our system that on top of that, we are telling these people, you deal with all of this and then you go to your doctor for care and the doctor is there to say, well, if you were not, I mean, the doctor won't say that it that way, but it comes down to the fact that the doctor as, in, as if a non-disabled person goes to his physician or her physician and says, "My life sucks. I have. I find it challenging. I would want to have medical assistance in dying." The reaction would be, "No, we we don't want you to die. We we as a system are not doing that for you." When a disabled person now goes to a physician in that particular context in which you know they struggle, in which a disproportionate number of them are impacted by social and and uh, economic factors. In that context, you have a physician who normally would say, I really believe that there is hope for you. I really believe that we can help you in that context, where a physician says we can try treatment A, B, C, but there is also medical assistance in dying. And I think in, in that context that there is something deeply troubling about what that means.
1: Yeah, people certainly. I reckon have seen some of the stories and some of the reports of people who are choosing this because they essentially are poor and they don't have access to healthcare and they have a lack of treatments. Um, there's one um, activist Liz Kessler started a, a Google sheet that I was looking at today where people were submitting stories in which people were choosing MAID in a context where the reasons were either poverty, inadequate disability supports, inadequate health care, or inadequate access. And I think as of now, it has over 20 examples of really sort of shocking and unfortunate situations where people are essentially being forced to choose MAID because they have no alternative when, in fact, they do have an alternative if the state provided that alternative that is readily available. So I'm I'm shocked by those stories as a lot of people are. I'm also, not to trivialize those stories at all, but I do wonder if they color our perception of this policy perhaps a little bit more than they should, because although they are troubling stories, they are about 20 that people have cataloged. And according to the government statistics, about 10,000 people have chosen made over the last year. Most of those people, I think 65% of them, have terminal cancer. Are we potentially sort of cherry-picking, in a sense, or, or having sort of the wrong impression of, you know, who the policy is really benefiting and who the policy is really hurting? Like, in, in a sense, are we misunderstanding it by focusing on these really Really shocking stories that really are as shocking as they are seem to me to be the aberration
3: that's a good question but um I would say in any area of medical practice if we would have twenty scandalous cases of people dying we would have a thorough investigation because they tend to be the tip of the iceberg and I'm not saying that there are necessarily i won't even put a number on it that there are thousands or hundreds of of inappropriate cases but it's It's not because we only have 20 cases that are reported that we don't have more. What we know, though, from the Health Canada reports is that there are problems with the practice of MAID more generally, that you look at the Health Canada reports that report on the reasons why people identify that they suffer unbearably as the reason why they're asking for MAID. Well, many of these reasons are things that I would say send a red flag about, is there adequate access to palliative care? It's more than 50%, it's it's a very significant number of people who say that they, the nature of their um, um, unbearable suffering is associated with pain or fear of inadequate pain relief. Well, ask any pain specialist, how many patients pain cannot be like proportionally, cannot be addressed adequately with good pain relief care? It's an infinite minority. There used to be more problems with that, but medicine has developed in this area. So the fact that people are afraid and ask for aid because of pain relief for me is a sign that there is a problem. It's also important to say that your number of 10,000 is the number of last, uh, let's say of the last year that we have, but we only very recently introduced medical assistance in dying outside of the end of life context. There's also another thing I, I would want to emphasize is that Canada doesn't have the same safeguards actually that Belgium and the Netherlands have, which explains also why we have seen an in- incredibly fast increase of the percentage of people dying by May. And so uh, let me simply briefly tell you the safeguards that are clearly not there in Canada which are which in my view are stunning. One thing is that in the Canadian context physicians are not obliged to agree that there are no other medical options left. Uh, so that means concretely, that if a person comes to a healthcare provider and the healthcare provider is according to some of the guidelines that we've developed in canada obliged to put MAID on the table when the person might qualify for MAID, you have a healthcare provider who says you know MAID is an option for you and the patient says well uh, but there are these other treatments but i'm not interested in them the physician has to agree that the person considered these options but doesn't have an obligation to make sure that they're available that's not the case in belgium and netherlands We've elevated medical assistance in dying to some form of relief of suffering that bypasses all normal medical interactions. So I think it's a perversion of what what medicine is about.
1: One of the things that sort of undergirds a lot of this conversation and the writing, especially from critics of MAID, is that wider societal context that you mentioned which is really, really troubling, the sort of lack of access to adequate supports, to health care, to, you know, disability payments, to the kinds of things that make a life bearable. And it's clear, you know, especially in these sort of 20 cases, and I'm sure that there are others, that people are choosing this because the state isn't providing the things that they should be providing. And that's a total travesty. But I do wonder, you know, to be a slight sort of philosophical pedant here, that there's a bit of a slippage in how we're talking about these two things. I think there's sort of two questions. Like the question, like this, this is the way I'm approaching it at least, and I want to hear kind of your thoughts. And I'm I'm actually a little ambivalent about this. So, you know, feel free. I'm 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 still trying to figure out how I'm thinking about it. But here's how I'm thinking about it. I think that the first question is, is the government providing for people, disabled people, poor people? people that need healthcare, housing, and the supports that they need. I think the answer to that for many people is no, they're not. And so pe- some people are choosing MAID. Then there's a second question. In that intolerable context, should they be given the option? Now, yes, it's a very constrained choice that is informed by an intolerable and unjust society that we live in. But I think the question is does taking that choice away make their situation any better or worse? Or should we say it's a very unfortunate choice, it's an unfortunate choice because of these political contexts, but on kind of harm reduction grounds even, we can accept.
3: Yeah, I understand where you're coming from, but I would say one thing. When you say taking away that choice, we're not taking away that choice. What has happened in the Canadian context is that we suddenly say it's, okay for medical professionals and nurse practitioners to actively end the life of a person. This is something that was understandably taboo for a very long time. Why? Because we're worried about giving the power over life and death to medical professionals. I mean, what is their special expertise in terms of understanding why and and in what circumstances people should be dying? You know, yes, they were able to inject medication. uh, So, but many other people could do that as well. So, I would say we suddenly medicalized, or we introduced a procedure that we have framed as being a medical procedure to end the life of persons who are otherwise not dying. This was not a choice before. It's saying we're depriving that choice. Well, as I said, people can decide for themselves, even simply. It may seem cruel, and I'm not suggesting that this is a good solution and that there are no circumstances in which the suicide of people uh, is tragic, but in and of itself, there's always choice, you know, so people can for themselves decide in a very blunt way. I don't want to be fed, you know, so I I, I don't want to have this form of treatment. I don't want to have that. What What we're actually saying is we create in circumstances in which people don't have the same ease of selection of options where suddenly for people who are inherently disproportionately socially and economically in a more challenging situation, we create for that group of people, an extra choice. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So as again, because it's not available for other people, it's a, it's available, suddenly we create that additional option. And in and of itself, it gives society a very comfortable way out to pretend that this is a humane way of relief of their suffering.
1: I hear that and I worry about that too, but I'm not sure you've totally convinced me because I think the case that you have to make is that, to go back to the sort of two questions, if offering made somehow precludes or disincentivizes or in a meaningful way lets the government off the hook in terms of providing XYZ services that they should have provided long ago. If saying yes, made means no everything else, then I'm with you. Like made is an absolute last resort and we should actually focus on the other stuff as much as we can. But I don't see that necessarily a conflict. I, I don't see evidence to say that. I mean, if anything, all of the made stories have brought to public attention the way that our healthcare system is broken, that it's not serving disabled people, racialized communities, that it's causing a sort of outrage that is saying, oh, we need to sort of improve.
3: Yeah, but people are, are dead, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but I, I still think that there is this how to go around issue, which is we offer it as a normal treatment of suffering. Mm-hmm. Death to persons with disabilities while we're not doing it to other people. Why is that? Have you asked yourself the question why that is? Uh, why, why somebody who is not disabled cannot go to the physician and say, well, actually, I really find that my life is no longer worth living. Please give me an injection. The physician will say, no, it's only available if you fulfill these criteria, which are covering persons with disabilities. And so it basically tells the me- it sends the message. And I think this is in and of itself a reflection of the ableism that pervades our society. It sends a message that when it comes to disability, we can presume... And we can accept as physicians that the experience of life, the quality of life of persons with disabilities is lower because it can be reasonable for them to opt for a dead buy with support of their physician. And so when you when you ask me about, surely physicians will be careful, I would say generally yes, but there will be many physicians that particularly with severe disabilities that they perceive to be intolerable that they their messaging will be wouldn't it be more humane for you to opt for medical assistance dying rather than have this additional operation on your spine
1: i have no idea how these conversations go between physicians and their patients i would have to ask a physician but I, I can't imagine it like you just said like this is still a person right that has a certain amount of discretion in terms of how they communicate with their patients i can't imagine a physician would ever take this sort of thing lightly and say Pick door one, door two, door three. It's probably, you know, it's an extended conversation. That's a, quite a grave and serious one.
3: Obviously, I'm simplifying what happens, but the reality is, it's happening. We've seen it. The stories that are coming out in Canada. So you say I can't imagine it happens. I would say look at some of the cases that have been happening, uh, which I think show that there is a that there is sometimes a sloppy, or or at least suggest that there is a sloppiness about promoting MAID as an option.
1: We've talked in this conversation a few times about how patients do have a choice. Unfortunately, they could just kill themselves, right? Not to be too callous about it. But I, I wonder in these cases, if we don't provide this as an option, if they just jump off a bridge, you know? I mean, the argument is that MAID is a more a humane way for people to, I mean, if people are suicidal, people are suicidal, they, they, yeah. they might go through with it, right?
3: Yeah, but most people who are suicidal who receive good care, don't go through it. And so the, so the question is, what will happen if we start normalizing this therapy? This is very complex evidence. So the claims have been made and it's actually something that the Supreme Court seemed to accept. They said, well, we need to offer medical assistance in dying because otherwise people will kill themselves when they're physically still able to do because they will fear that they won't be able to do it later. There is no evidence to suggest that once you start offering medical assistance and dying, the suicide rates in society goes down, which would normally have to happen. If you say, well, made is a humane way of solving suicide, you would say, well, suicide rates go down while the you know medical assistance and dying rates go up. There is no evidence that this is the case. There's even evidence, to the contrary, Again, this is complex evidence, but there is a recent study in the Journal of Ethics and Mental Health that looked at the suicide rates in Belgium and Netherlands, particularly with the development of um, of uh, euthanasia for mental illness, and it suggests that not only is there no compensation for, okay, you have a diminishing of suicide because you have an increase in, in euthanasia rates, there is a beginning of evidence that even the suicide rates in general go up. And it's not not surprising if you talk to suicide specialists, they will talk about the contagion effect of talking about suicide, of famous figures committing suicide or, or, or ending their life with suicide, and how that influences how people see, think about themselves.
1: But I, I feel like a lot of patient groups are asking for this. Like, isn't there a kind of danger here of sort of medical paternalism and thinking that it is the the doctors that are somehow sort of influencing these decisions, when in fact, these might be very well decisions that patients are selecting because they think it's the best for them. Like, I feel like in this conversation, there's been this sort of implicit argument that, oh, you know, these complex set of factors are sort of pushing people to make these decisions they don't want to really make. But perhaps this is just their decision, and we ought to respect it. Like they're making them with full recognition of the cost benefits and and the situation that they're in.
3: Well, you know, so uh, I would say, uh, the, look at the look at the uh, at the declarations. You look at the submissions to Parliament. The large, overwhelming majority of disability organisations are were against Bill C seven, which expanded medical assistant dying outside of the end-of-life context so i want to kind of emphasize i particularly focus on the end-of-life context because i defended as an expert in in court for the for the government the the first medical assistant dying bill so i i would make a, a fundamental distinction makes sense yeah end-of-life context Well, transition between life and death there is not this kind of concern about many of the factors that i describe. if you go outside of the end-of-life context the large majority, overwhelming majority of disability rights organizations said they were against Bill C-7. In what other context of lawmaking have we seen a government and parliament defend a law as being inherently beneficial for a patient population when that patient population or all the advocacy groups are saying, we don't want it and we think it's, it's inherently problematic to do so? Are there people with disabilities who supported it Yes, there are. There are a variety of opinions on this, but I would say generally, overwhelmingly, persons with disabilities perceive this to be a threat to the community. And I would not call it medical paternalism. I would say it's actually particularly striking how we're increasing the medical profession's power over life and death decisions.
1: That was Trudeau Lemons, professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. Lemons is the Shoal Chair in Health Law and Policy. One correction from our conversation, I misspoke about that Google sheet of stories of people applying for MAID because of poverty. We kept saying about 20 cases, but the list was actually 14 cases. This is from a Google Sheet by Liz Kessler. I mentioned them earlier. Kessler is a disability rights advocate and her Google Sheet compiled Canadian news reports of people seeking MAID where they cite either poverty, inadequate disability supports, or inadequate healthcare access. She also includes cases where the family believes that consent was inadequate at the time of their decision. This list includes 14 cases, not 20. One of the main groups pushing for MAID is a group called Dying with Dignity Canada. Dr. Derek Smith is a past board member. He is also clinical professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, and he's past president of the BC Medical Association. Dr. Smith supports the expansion of MAID, including for people with mental health conditions.
2: Like many people who uh, got involved with the assisted dying movement, I witnessed a, a couple of bad deaths in my family. My father had a lingering death. It took him about five years to die. He didn't have anything terribly wrong with him, but he was not mobile, really got to bed, and told me that the last five years of his life were the worst five years, and he'd wanted me to uh, help him commit suicide, which I told him I couldn't do because I wasn't going to go to jail. But I did tell him that I would... Uh, do my best to change the law. Uh, a second relative was a mother-in-law who died of dementia, which was a terrible thing to witness. You, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a person in the final stages of dementia, but they are incontinent of feces and urine. They're usually lying in bed. They're being tube-fed. They don't know who they are. They don't recognize anyone in the family. They, they are alive, but what made them a person has died. And, and sometimes months or years ago. So I think if you've gone through any of those experiences yourself you might be uh, committed to looking at a way that we could end people's suffering rather than have them linger on and on and on uh, yeah. with a disorder that's not going to be fixed or never going to get out of it. So that's a kind of the background and then I by happenstance after um, my father died I uh, met a friend a lawyer Joe Arvey and um I asked him about any interesting cases he was doing, and he said, yes, he has a Dying with Dignity case, so I volunteered to be an expert witness. Um, so I was, as far as I know, the only psychiatric expert involved with the Carter case. The, the Supreme Court, in a, a ruling of 9-0, to zero, granted uh, uh, Kay Carter and the other plaintiffs uh, access to an assisted uh, death. They also signed it, which is very unusual. Usually one justice signs it. All nine of them signed it. The importance of that case is that we know that if all you were using were the rules flowing out of Carter, that a person with a, just a psychiatric diagnosis had a right, and then this is now a charter right, uh, to have an assisted death. So what happened thereafter was that uh, the government introduced Bill C-14, And they attempted to narrow the scope of the Carter decision by introducing a phrase that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Now, I met on a number of occasions with the minister and advised her that they should take that out because no doctor in Canada knows what that means. Natural death, reasonably foreseeable. Does that mean I'm 75? It's naturally foreseeable. I'm going to be dead in 25 years. What does that time frame mean? It was meaningless. But what it did was that it essentially disenfranchised people with psychiatric illness uh, and many other types of patients from having an assisted death because doctors did not want to misinterpret that phrase.
1: So the government looks to be pushing the brakes a little bit, seeking possible delay on expanding access to patients where Mental illness is the main cause of their request for MAID, even though the plan was, I think, March, mid-March to expand it formally. What's your take on, on them them sort of pumping the brakes a bit?
2: Well, they're being put under enormous political pressure, and the pressure comes largely from people who don't like MAID under any circumstances. So uh, my concern is not the delay per se, but the fact that the delay is first is one step in terms of denying uh, this charter right to a certain class of Canadians the class being denied those who have psychiatric illness. Now, I don't see where psychiatric illness is much different than any other medical condition. You know, everything that's a psychiatric diagnosis is a problem with the human brain. The last time I looked, the human brain was part of the body. It's a medical condition. So why would we want to treat psychiatric patients any differently? And I think the reason is that there's a lot of stigma around psychiatry. And this is further example of, stigma, in in some cases being led by psychiatrists who want to treat psychiatric patients entirely differently and want to deny them access to a charter right. So I could live with a a brief delay in this, but uh, my concern is that the people who are speaking out against this are people who are opposed to made for everyone.
1: I think you've written pretty compellingly in many places about why mental illness is is a real illness and not it shouldn't be considered this sort of separate thing for which this group of people um, is denied their charter rights. But I want to kind of ask you again a little bit about that contention where you're suggesting that psychiatrists or others are are stigmatizing people with mental illness. But I think it's an interesting contention because I've spoken to a couple of different sort of disability rights activists and different people kind of in and around that community that seem to be coming from it for a place of genuine concern. Why do you suggest that, that it's a stigmatization?
2: Well, when you, when you uh, pick on one particular diagnosis... And that's mm-hmm. the only diagnosis for which you're not eligible for MAID. That to me seems to be stigma. Like, what would, what would we be doing if, if you had kidney disease and you wouldn't be eligible for MAID? What is, what, why is psychiatry always treated differently? And I think it has to do with stigma. I remember 100 years ago, we used to think that psychiatric illness was the work of the devil. And these people who refuse to see it as just another medical problem I think are you know are clinging to the past about what psychiatric illness was and, and isn't. We know it's a medical condition. We know it's a condition of the human brain. And as doctors, we treat this condition. We treat psychiatric illness the same as other other medical conditions. So I don't know why we have to treat why we only have this one class of person in Canada who's being denied access to
1: me. I mean, one of the important differences with psychiatric illnesses is the lack of uh, proper. Coverage. A lot of people, I mean, I think in, in The Star, you wrote quite well about the difficult sort of value and ethical questions that go into the consideration of whether or not to go forward with MAID. And you put it in one place really simply that saying, addressing these difficult questions requires time, careful consideration, and prudence within a safe therapeutic relationship uh, between doctor and patient. And I thought it was really well said, but one of the concerns I had in reading that is thinking about psychiatric illnesses, how many people, that doesn't describe their relationship to the mental health care system. So I wonder if psychiatric illness is a case where maybe we worry that, well, people don't have, you know, they don't have access to therapy, let alone even many people don't have access to a family physician. Do we have the space where people have As you put it, careful consideration, prudence within a safe and therapeutic relationship.
2: Well, psychiatric patients have as good access to the healthcare system as anybody else. But the truth of the matter is our healthcare system is falling apart and is about to collapse thanks to government mismanagement. So 5 million Canadians do not have a family doctor. What that means is if you don't have a family doctor, you can't get in to see a specialist. You can't get in to see a, a cancer specialist. You can't be referred for surgery. You can't be sent to a psychiatrist. So uh, there's no doubt that our health care system is in crisis. But that has nothing to do with a fundamental charter right. We all have the same terrible access to health care. That's a separate issue. And I think it's a pressing issue. But. It's a totally separate one from the issues that we're discussing about with uh, access to uh, assisted dying.
1: Well, I mean, you could see a psychiatrist in a hospital, but you don't have access to psychological, extensive psychological counseling. There's a huge inequality with access to that sort of care. The, the sort of long-term psychosocial supports that people need to discuss and to treat their mental illnesses.
2: Listen, every patient who is facing death needs psychosocial services. Doesn't make any difference whether it's psychiatry or terminal cancer or heart disease or whatever. This is a very emotional time. Now, the problem with our healthcare system is that all that's really pays for is hospital beds and doctors. So that's, the, again, the limitation of the system. We have to live with that system for all other medical conditions, and we have to live with it with psychiatry. So I don't think psychiatry is any particularly uh, is not particularly different in terms of not being able to access the full spectrum of care. We all have lots of people who don't have appropriate housing. I mean, in my city, there's people lying around the streets camped out in the rough in the winter. That's a separate issue, that's tragic, but it has nothing to do with the issue around a person uh, who makes a request for assisted dying.
1: I feel very conflicted on this because I, I too see it in in some way a separate issue in terms of what are people's uh, charter rights and 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 civil liberties and to what extent do we respect their choice. At the same time, I'm sure you've read these stories of which there are many with people um, like here's just a few: Amir Fassad, a disabled man who applied for. Uh, Made because he had inadequate disability supports in Ontario. It wasn't until a GoFundMe stepped up that he uh, retracted that. Or Chris Gladders, a disabled man uh, who applied for MAID, he lived in Niagara Falls. After his death, journalists discovered the horrific conditions he was living in within a retirement home. Or Jackie Holyoke, uh considered medical assistant in dying because of the f- the pain of fibromyalgia recently. Uh, this is a recent CBC article. She told the CBC that it had a lot to do with their um, lack of disability benefits. Another woman, I think this was a CTV story where um, she was seeking MAID because of chemical sensitivities and essentially um, the story redounds to the fact that she couldn't find adequate housing where uh, she could be in a smoke-free environment. And so MAID was the best option for her. I think a lot of people are troubled by these choices where they see people making a choice that seems like a forced choice or a very constrained choice. So the idea of it just being a simple choice doesn't seem to quite compute. I mean, do these stories trouble you?
2: Well, they they are troublesome, but uh, there's the caveat. How many of these people actually received an assisted death? Just because you ask for it doesn't mean you're going to get it. So the vast majority of these, what I call outlying cases are never going to be approved for assisted dying by, by physicians in Canada. Second thing is, look at the vast majority of what has happened with MAID in Canada. Last year, 2021, which is the most recent report, 10,000 Canadians had an assisted death. The vast majority of those were elderly. The vast majority of them had cancer or, or neurological problems. 80% of them had palliative care. So, we can't lose uh, sight of the forest for the trees. These these outlying cases are troublesome and they seem to get a great deal of uh, space in the press because they are distressing. But that in no way, shape or form represents the average Canadian who is seeking an assisted death.
1: Oh, I take your point. I think over 60% of uh, requests are are Um, cancer-related. And like you said, are, are terminal cases for the most part. So I think you're right, I mean, that it's an aberration, but is that not a concerning number, even if it's a small number?
2: You have to understand the circumstances of the individual. This is a case been made time and time again in the courts, that it's not about the diagnosis or the social circumstances. It's about understanding the entire person. Now, if someone who is a, has an illness, you, you, you must have a medical illness, You can't just apply for this because you don't have a house. If they have a medical illness and they have inadequate housing and inadequate social supports and the government can't step up and provide those, why would we want to deny a person like that access to assisted dying if that's what they want? After they've considered everything else, you know, they can't get better housing, they can't get more social support. Why would we want them to continue suffering when the government can't provide that? I mean, it's a tragedy that the government can't provide that, but... The government cannot possibly meet the psychosocial needs of the entire population. They can't even provide us with a proper medical system, let alone looking at all these other things.
1: Do you think there's a worry here? I mean, I think a lot of people think whether or not it directly sort of lets the government off the hook. It certainly kind of has that kind of moral hazard where you're saying, okay, well, the government can't provide it. Well, that's a political choice. Uh, They've made a political choice not to and they've made a political choice to make MAID accessible. So I think a lot of people worry, well, this is kind of, this is all you got, poor, sick, disabled person. Uh, we won't give you housing, but we'll let you end it. I think that troubles people.
2: The reason we have access to MAID has nothing to do with government, nothing to do with politicians. Uh, if we didn't have the court system functioning in Canada, there would be no one would be getting assisted dying. So it's nothing to do with the politicians. It's everything to do with the courts and the charter interpretations. And the courts have consistently found that denying someone access to assisted death is a violation of the charter, of their charter rights.
1: Yeah, but the courts aren't administering made There's still a healthcare system that that the government is, I mean, the government is, drawing, is dragging its feet on it right now, regardless of what the courts have said, because it's a political well, issue. Well, the courts haven't, haven't decided
2: specifically on the issue of, of mental illness. They haven't as they say from Carter, we know that it's permissible, but Carter didn't discuss psychiatric illness because that wasn't one of the the things that was alive. So uh, if we're going to want, if we want this thing settled definitively, and I hope it doesn't come to this, but it, it's going to involve going back to court and getting a, getting a, a judge and a, uh, probably the court of appeal and the Supreme court of Canada telling us whether someone with a psychiatric illness has access to charter rights, the same as everybody else does. Now, I'm, no, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that's a pretty slam-dunk kind of case to have because it's such blatant discrimination against a, a particular uh, small segment of the Canadian population. I, I don't think it would... I think the courts would strongly upheld the rights of psychiatric patients.
1: I'm not a lawyer either, but I think it's going to take... A, like the medical assistance and dying regime is a political and policy... The courts are not telling the government how to do it. They're telling them that they need to advance legislation, and so I think that's where we're at, right? Where we're trying to think about what exactly that looks like and what the safeguards are and what the restrictions are. Correct me if my characterization there is wrong, but I, I do want to—I did want to ask you about that a little bit in terms of what you think the proper kinds of safeguards and systems in uh, that we should have in place for this. Do we have everything we need? The kind of ninety-day evaluation period cooling off, the two doctors signing, whatever else we have, is that sufficient in your mind or is there other things that we, we might want to look at as well?
2: Well, the government has been studying this for two years. Over that period of time, they had a, uh, an expert panel comprised of lawyers, citizens, and psychiatrists. It was chaired by a, co-chaired by a psychiatrist and a lawyer, and they issued a report giving 19 recommendations. Their report went to the special joint committee, which is composed of parliamentarians. They issued an interim report, and they're supposed to be issuing a final report. So it's a bit premature for me to say what should and shouldn't be there. We want to see what uh, this body of work has come up with. But my sense is, is that probably for a person with a psychiatric illness, one of the assessors is going to be have to be a psychiatrist, and that seems to make a uh, common sense to me and to most other people as well because this is such an area of great controversy the the problems uh, are half the psychiatrists in Canada are opposed to made for psychiatric illness half are in favor but half are opposed
1: one of the one of the people i spoke to i'm, I'm sure you know the person trudeau lemons we talked a little bit about the 90 day sort of safeguard and in one of the one of the pieces he wrote, he just said "That's ridiculous. I mean, you can't get to a specialist in ninety days. What does ninety days mean as a sort of cooling off period? Do you think that, again, going back to the sort of constrained choices, that these patients really are going to be able to avail themselves of the treatments that they need to address their concerns in that in that kind of window?
2: Well, Mr. Lemons is a lawyer, not a doctor, so I don't think he knows much about how the medical system works the cooling off period is for assessment. It's not necessarily for treatment. So the 90 days was what the liberal government decided to put in there is to deal with the finding from the Truchon case. So that's a political decision, the 90 days. Is that sufficient to let people you know, cool off and rethink things? Well, uh, it, it makes a difference. These are people who are, they, they qualified; they are suffering interminably. Waiting 90 days for some of these people is like waiting a lifetime. So it's always a trade-off between being merciful and helping a a person relieve their suffering or making sure they've had enough time to clearly think about it. So I don't have any particular opinion. Is 90 days uh, the right time? Is 30 days the right time? Uh, Is half a year the right time? But I know that the people who are waiting are suffering while that's happening. Uh, You know, I I usually disagree with that. Mr. Lemons, and I certainly disagree with him on, on this. Who? What's the constituency that, that he is representing? Uh, do they represent disabled people? Well, we know disabled people are going to court to have assisted dying. So I'm not sure. I think there are a large number of people who are simply opposed to me. And every time the debate comes up, they come out with the same arguments that we have heard you know, since the Carter case was first heard in Canada.
1: I want to maybe return to this piece that I referred to earlier that you co-wrote in The Star, which I think really, really summed up the whole debate really well. And, and just for the benefit of the audience, I'll I'll read a, a bit of it. You wrote that under current made laws, whether someone has a grievous and irredeemable condition, physical, mental, or both, it is not a black and white decision, but a matter of clinical judgment depending on the sum total of a person's circumstances. A conclusion of irredeemability involves more than just factual evidence from research studies about treatment and prognosis. It is a judgment that inevitably includes both facts and values, both evidence and ethics. Made practice in this country requires individual assessment on a case-by-case basis, allowing patients and their clinicians to face these profound questions about suffering and dignity, who gets to decide... And again, addressing these difficult questions requires time, careful consideration and prudence within a safe and therapeutic relationship. Again, the reason why I bring this up is because I think that totally sums up the question. The debate is not a question purely of facts. It is a question of values. It is a question of dignity and who gets to decide in what kind of medical system we want. And you conclude to say that people with mental illnesses should be able to be part Of that conversation. I like that quote. I also think that it can be read completely as a strike against made because people can say and people have said, who is this psychiatrist or whoever else in the medical system? A medical system that we've already discussed really fails people, a medical system that people feel unserved and marginalized by. Who are you or any other doctor to say that you can be part of this question of values and ethics and what sort of medical system and what sort of world we want to live in. What qualifies any psychiatrist to, to shape that conversation?
3: Well, what
2: qualifies us is that uh, we are governed by legislation, pure and simple. So we're not doing anything that the government does not uh, allow us to do. Values? Well, of course, medicine is all about values. I mean, the notion of should you help a sick person, that's a value judgment. Medicine is, is, has been governed by values long before we had any science going on. We we need more science, but we we would be lost without, without values as well. And certainly one of the things that we're taught is that we should try to cure illness, but we should at all times relieve suffering. So uh, if we can't cure illnesses, be it terminal cancer, or someone who's been suffering from a psychiatric illness for 30 years, why would we not want to at least relieve their suffering if we can't cure them? The issue of irremediability is interesting because there are some psychiatrists who think that all psychiatric illness can be cured, and that's a a point of major debate. More than 60% of uh, psychiatrists in Canada believe there is such a thing as irremediability with psychiatric illness. I have certainly seen it over over my practice lifetime, but that's a point of contention uh, uh, in the profession.
1: It seems like there's some level of debate and uncertainty there, and uh, like you wrote, <laughs> requires great time and care in a trusting therapeutic relationship. So in that context of uncertainty, if we may or may not even have that level of care and time and that trusting relationship, Do you you worry that we might make the irredeemability diagnosis uh, hastily in a context like that?
2: As I've said, no doctor I know approaches this in a hasty or careless fashion because it's such a critically important decision for the patient, maybe the last decision they will make. Next thing it's if they make the wrong judgment or disobey the law, they could be charged with murder under the criminal code. So there's a number of reasons why doctors... Are extremely cautious, uh, and why not? Not everyone who applies for MAID is approved because they don't meet the criteria. So, I'm comfortable with letting doctors continue to do what they what they've been doing. A group of doctors who are interested and concerned with assisting these patients have formed a national organization. They provide training, they provide support. They have na- they have uh, uh, annual meetings. Uh, they're provi- they're giving training to. Doctors are interested, so the medical system, I think, has uh, responded very well to the legislation, and I'm certain that we would respond very well to assisted dying for psychiatric patients when that becomes uh, available, depending on what the government decides to uh, to do with it. And as I say, it's not going to require a huge number of doctors. This is a small number of patients. You no, know, I'd estimate 25 a year. That's you don't need to have every doctor in Canada. Uh, you need to have a few experts in each province who are prepared to do this, and uh, things can proceed uh, as they have uh, with the rest of the main processes.
1: That was Dr. Derek Smith, past board member of Dying with Dignity and clinical professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we are produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Epilonio, and Ren Bangert. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Koop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Kallak. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of our new mini-series that looks at the politics of medicine and medical controversies. The scholarly leads are professors Maya Goldenberg at the University of Guelph and Maxwell J. Smith at the University of Western Ontario. The research assistant on this project is Yoshiyuki Miyasaka. They all provided research support and guidance to this episode. We are also supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in next year. Happy holidays.